the outline process. Absolutely. So, and I think maybe having six kids, raising six kids and knowing that like my husband was a basketball coach and teaching. So we had a very beautifully busy life and I wasn't about to miss any of it. Like I am, I'm super outgoing person. I'm not the kind of more tip, the more typical reclusive person who lives through their stories in a quiet place. I'm like, give me people. I just want to be around people and get to enjoy the life of it all. And so it's like pulling teeth for me to sit me down and I almost need a seatbelt in my chair to be able to, you know, just like keep me in my chair. (laughs) So um, God's given me the ability to write very quickly, which is uh, a blessing. So to me, writing a book is like swimming across the ocean. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to another episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Today, we welcome the one and only Karen Kingsbury a number one New York Times bestselling novelist who is one of America's favorite inspirational storytellers. With more than 25 million copies of her award-winning books in print. Wow. Her last dozen titles have topped bestseller lists, and many of her novels are under development as major motion pictures, and her Baxter family books are being developed into a TV series. I am Ron Block. And I am Patty Callahan-Henry. Karen has opened her own production company called Karen Kingsbury Productions. She is also an adjunct professor of writing at Liberty University. She and her husband, Donald, who I think I see in the background, but you listeners cannot see. (laughs) She lives in Tennessee near her children and grandchildren. Lucky her. Today, we will talk with her about her newest novel, Just Once her Baxter family series, and the deep themes that find their way into her stories, as well as her new production company. Publishing House Sisters at Atria, I am pleased to welcome Karen Kingsbury to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be with you today. We're going to have a a great conversation. Yay. Okay, let's dive right in. Just Once is such a moving book set during World War II. It's a love story about a young female spy torn between two brothers. Ervel Holland is dating one brother and in love with another. Did I get her name right? Ervel. Ervel. Thank you. When the war starts and Sam leaves for the war, everything changes. And without spoilers, that is, on the face of it, what the book is about. But in true friends and fiction style, Karen, can you tell us what you think the book is really about? I think Just Once is a story of a young woman overcoming fear and learning to make decisions that line, align with her heart and with her faith. You know, a lot of times in life, we are just so tempted to kind of go the way of least resistance instead of tuning in, like to 
the Lord? What's he calling you to? What does your heart actually say about this in line with what God is saying? And making a decision that's maybe more difficult. So for her, she truly, and she's terrified of the war. Uh, She has to learn to go from a person who gets panic attacks when the radio comes on with an announcement about the war in Europe before we were involved in it as uh, the United States. And she has to go from the panic attack, Ervil, to working for the Office of Strategic Services, which was the original agency that led to the CIA, as an actual spy in World War II. And it's an incredible story. It's a love story, but I think it's an incredible story of overcoming. It is that and so much more. Because the love story really grabbed me by the heart. One of the opening scenes is between one of the brothers and Ervil, and it is so moving. It is set in 1931 when she is 12 years old, and they're walking along the creek's edge. And I could see my three kids at 12 years old. I could see myself at 12 years old (laughs) because her mother has warned her not to walk along the creek bed. And she turns to Hank, and they're both 12, and she says, come on, just once, which is, of course, the book's title. And you can guess what happens to her after that. But I want to talk about inspiration because I can see the book title in that scene. And Karen Kingsbury fans will recognize the name Ervil from your previous Baxter family books. So can you pinpoint where the seed of this novel came from or the inspiration and why write her story now? So a funny thing happened when I was writing about Ervil current day uh, as part of the Baxter family series, Ervil was a minor character and she was a Uh, a resident at the Sunset Hills Adult Care Home where she had Alzheimer's. She was a a widow. Her husband had been gone for many years, but she still imagined him fishing with the boys and about to come home anytime as she sipped her tea in the front room. And the only person who ever poured into her and let her be in that place was Ashley Baxter. Ashley was having her own struggles. Um, and and Herbal was really used by God to bring her kind of back around and, and very instrumental in Ashley's life. But I came to really love Herbal, and I never had a grandmother myself. Um, so Herbal became the grandmother I never knew. And I loved spending time with her while I was writing. I mean, I just felt like I got to know her. So I knew her time was coming, and I knew that she was going to be with her husband, Hank, and friends that had gone before, and everything would be okay, but I was very sad about having to lose Herbal. So I'm in my bedroom, and I'm writing. I'm sitting in my chair. Um, my husband and I have enough space, you know, just a spot there that I can write. And my, I'm writing, and I'm, I'm writing more and more and more slowly because I don't want to have to say goodbye to Herbal. And finally, Herbal takes her last breath. And now I just have to take my laptop, set it down beside my chair, and have a good cry over losing Erfel. Well, my husband comes bounding into the room looking for a sweatshirt. He's outside playing ball with the boys in the front. And he stops, and he sees me, and he says, Karen, oh, no, what's wrong? He goes, why are you crying? What, what, what happened? And I can barely get the words out. I say, honey, Erfel died. So, you know, my husband <laughs> gets this, like, terrified look in his face like oh no he said do we know Ervil from church or from school (laughs) (laughs) and I said honey no she's one of my characters well my husband rolls his eyes all the way to the ceiling you know he's like Karen I don't feel sorry for you I mean you killed her 
<laughs> so we just like laugh so hard. We like I'm like laughing through my tears, and then my husband's like, you know, just backspace, like bring her back, like you know, you know, bring her back. And that was just kind of a joke, like in the initial go of it, because when God gives me a story, it's very real, and I feel like the first reader. I don't feel like I'm making it up, so I am laughing and crying, and my husband's learned to just kind of like walk around me and kind of go, okay, you know, yeah, there you are. Um, but when he said bring her back, I thought to myself, now, now there is an idea. You know, maybe maybe there is something there. And what about bringing her back to when she was just a young girl and she was falling in love with Hank and World War II was about to burst onto the scene, not just in the world, but also in the United States. And what about that story? And what if what if this sweet, genteel woman who sat in the front room sipping peppermint tea was actually one of the first women spies in the United States? Wouldn't that be something? And, you know, just like that, like the, the story just sort of, appears in my head and I'm writing an outline and gosh, I feel like I promised my readers this book a little while ago, a couple months back. So they have been waiting on pins and needles. And now finally, November 14th, it'll be out. That's awesome. Which takes me way off track of what of our discussion, because you said I outlined it, which brings me to, are you a big outliner? As a writer, I love hearing everybody's process. Outline, go for it. Architect, gardener. It sounds like you outline. I love the outline process. Absolutely. So, and I think maybe having six kids, raising six kids and knowing that like my husband was a basketball coach and teaching. So we had a very beautifully busy life and I wasn't about to miss any of it. Like I am, I'm super outgoing person. I'm not the kind of more, the more typical reclusive person who lives through their stories in a quiet place. I'm like, give me people. I just want to be around people and get to enjoy the life of it all. And so it's like, pulling teeth for me to sit me down and I almost need a seatbelt in my chair to be oh, able to, yeah. you know, just like keep me in my chair. I know. So um, God's given me the ability to write very quickly, which is a blessing, but I don't. So to me, writing a book is like swimming across the ocean. And though I've done it, you know, a number of times, like many times at this point, it's still hard. Like it's still very like, it's like, you know, get you into really gear up for this, especially when I want to be with real people. Um, so I'm getting, and you know, I'm sitting down. I'm going to write. I don't want to swim nine miles in the wrong direction. Mm. So I have to outline. Like I have to love my characters and know everything about them. I have a page on each of them. I have the story through each person's point of view, and then I have an outline so I can kind of go this from this character, and then this next piece from this character because I like to alternate points of view when I write, yeah. and I yeah. consider my style more of a deep point of view. So it's it's. The outline pieces are really important. They tell you whose point of view, when, where, and a bit about what, and maybe even a few of the sentences that just kind of pop out to me as hinge points or transitional mm-hmm. sentences. So in some ways, when I've done the outline, I'm like, the, the satisfaction for me is kind of done. <laughs> so then I have to do the hard part, which is go ahead and write it. <laughs> yes. Well, so when you have an idea and you're about to start, do you have any rituals or things that you do to get yourself motivated to get going? Like, do you have special pens and books? And Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I feel like for me, it's going to be, I need a good pair of headphones and I need a playlist because mm. I get to, you know, kind of score my own movie in my head. Um, first third of the book, I feel like that has to be instrumental. And, and I'm finding beautiful instrumental pieces. It might be, you know, it could be worship stuff. It could be movie soundtrack things. And I create this musical 
score to the story that hasn't yet happened. And then once I get past a certain point, certainly once I get past the halfway mark, um, absolutely, I can have music with words. I can actually, then it's not a problem. I can play anything. I could be in a gym watching a basketball game. And as long as my headphones are in, I'm in that world. <laughs> my body's in this world and I want to be there, but you know, I'm in, I'm in my book and you couldn't pull me out of it. And, and then it's pretty quick. You know, it's a pretty quick process from there. I love that. Yeah. I would love to see one of your outlines because I don't outline. I do a little bit. I mean, I have my main, I have a synopsis, but every time I try to outline Karen, I feel like I lose the juice of the story because then I know what happens. But I think that's what's so fascinating is that every writer has their own way of finding a story and we aren't made the same and neither are our stories. So back to just once. By chapter one, Ervil has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And I've also written a novel with an Alzheimer's father. And that was years ago, almost 10 now. And there is so much new research. Um, can you tell us what you discovered while you were writing or the research you did or, or how you approached this devastating disease that just decimates families and minds and people? Yeah, you know, it's... Um an interesting thing, and we, like back about the outline, an interesting thing is that I give myself permission to break my outline. Mm, so that, that, you know, if I'm I writing, I'm not locked into it. I can add, and one of the things that, you know, several things added in, and one was the color red. So one of the... So interesting. I didn't know you. that. Yeah. So I watched a documentary on Alzheimer's, and it said the last color is red. That's the last thing you remember. And all I could picture was Hank mm. framing every beautiful picture from all the beautiful moments in their life in red. I get these mm. red frames and give her a red dress and just anything that would help connect her to not let go of that memory a moment before she absolutely had to. So I learned that and I learned, and, and this may have been information that wouldn't have been privy. They wouldn't have been privy to because this, it's sort of, this is when they're in their sixties and she lives to her eighties. So this still is kind of, even when she's getting her diagnosis, it's somewhat time period, you know, it's, it's, it's back in the eighties and they probably wouldn't have known this then, but some people might've known it. So I included a touch of it. And that is that, you know, a low carb diet, Mm-hmm. is going to give you the best chance to fight Alzheimer's. In fact, today they would call Alzheimer's disease type 3 diabetes. You can search it on YouTube and find – YouTube's probably the best place to find experts talking about this. But the way that, um, you know, sugar synthesis in our bodies, if you are insulin resistant at all, creates a breakdown of like the handshake that has to happen between our neurons and our brain – breaks apart with sugar. Um, and so, yeah, so if a person, like if I knew of somebody who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, the first thing I would do is say, you're going to go on a, a carnivore diet, like go extreme and, and have no carbs whatsoever and just see where that goes. Uh, because I think that's so much affecting our brains, the way that modern, our, you know, our processed food and the way that we eat. Has affected us. I agree. Wow. Yeah. So I want to go back to the characters just a little bit. Are Herbal Hank or Sam inspired by real people from that time period that you wrote about? They're really not. Herbal and Hank and his brother Sam are just people that came to my imagination. Like, obviously, Herbal first was a character I wrote about as a you know an eighty year old dealing with Alzheimer's and very sweet, sweet woman and missing her husband. So it became from there I was working my way backwards. 
and watched a lot of documentaries, you know, did a lot of research on what was life like in 1940, 1941, uh, prior to Pearl Harbor. And just that I, I, I wanted her to be a girl who, you know, a young woman who had spunk and spirit to her and that turned people's heads in a way that had less to do about her physical beauty and more to do with her internal beauty, but also that she lived with this fear. And I think, you know, there was a sense in in that time and in any time, but certainly back then that things looked pretty put together. I mean, people had, you know, the sense that there was like a, you know, your clothes were neat and you had, you looked finished, you know, you, it it was like a living Instagram post, you know, you just kind of had this. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) <laughs> it's but, true. But, it's yeah. so true. But what were they really feeling inside? What What did you really think when, you know, this, I mean, you're seeing these dictator evil types moving forward and just conquering countries and like, we're not going to be involved. You know, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear about it, <laughs> you know. But I think there had to have been a big undercurrent of fear on that part of some people and that would have been Ervil and then a sense of fight. Uh, uh, from the guys, you know, and a lot of them were leaving to go fight in Europe because they couldn't, there was nothing to fight for, for us, but they were willing to go overseas and fight for another country because they so wanted to come against the evil of these dictators. And so I think, um, to that end, no, no, nobody that I really know, but shaped by what culture might have created a person to look like and be. Yeah. That's wonderful. And what's fascinating to me is that we, because I write historical also, is you look at what culture we imagine it shaped them to be mm-hmm. until you get to know them a little bit. Or you find an old diary or an old journal or old letters. And you can right. see what was shimmering under the surface when the world was tilted there. And I'm always curious about theme as a writer because it crops up, it bubbles up, or sometimes we go into it deliberately But a common theme in your books is how sharing and understanding secrets can help a family grow. Is this a deliberate choice or is this something that bubbles up in your writing for you? I kind of, maybe a little bit of both. I Mm. I think, I remember I became a believer in my mid-20s and I can remember it was so overwhelming. I was so in love and I still am with God's word. I was so thankful. I would just cry every service, you know, the worship music just pouring over me and the Holy Spirit filling my heart. And I can remember looking up and down the aisle going, and this is really, this motivates my writing to this day. And that was that everything looks pretty, like we all look so good, right? Just sort of sitting here in our Sunday best. And it, the churches I've been very blessed to be a part of are very real and it's not fake. It's not a fake feeling, but I felt like people had to feel like they look kind of put together but that's not real. And uh, what's going on underneath the surface? We had a woman who came to our our Bible study uh, once, um, and she, she was this woman named Jill, and she was very happy, and she had a lot of joy, and she was probably 20 years older than me. And I came to find out pretty early on that she had lost her husband in a drunk driving accident. She was He was helping their daughter's friend changed a tire on the side of the road and a drunk driver hit him and killed him right in front of their daughter. And she had taken a Bible to the prison to give to the drunk driver. And she had this piece that as a new believer, I was like, whatever that is, that's how I want to go through life. Yeah. But if you ran into this woman in the store or even at church or whatever, you wouldn't necessarily know what was under the surface. And I think that's the, it's a beautiful, I always want to go to that deep place. We all have secrets. Mm. You know, we all have 
things that motivate us that the world doesn't know about or that drive us or that we've been through and people don't have even time to figure out what those things are. So I love to uncover those layers and let us really, really, really see behind the curtain for the people that I write about. Mm, I love that. I mean, that's why I say often we feel like pretend psychoanalysts, like, let me see inside of there. Let me see what that is. Another common theme I see in your work is a tagline for this book, which is, can love find a way from the ashes of great heartbreak? Talk to us about how this finds its way in your stories. And what does that mean to you to find ashes from, find a way from the ashes of great heartbreak? I think one of my favorite Bible verses when I became a believer was Romans eight twenty eight, that, you know, all things work to the good for those who love God. And that seems so, or, or like his mercies are new every morning. You know, like I have a, t- a book called Waiting for Morning. Um, I think it's the reality that life is, is uh, beautifully broken. Mm, and I love that. It's a beautiful phrase. It's nice. It's just, you know, I love this place. I love where we're living for now. And it is just earth, but it's beautiful, but it is broken. And there's no guarantee one day to the next what might or might not happen. Because of that, we need to be able to embrace the reality that no matter what, there can be beauty there. And that in the greatest heartbreak, um, Jeremy Camp is a friend of mine. And when he lost his first wife, they were standing around the hospital bed when she took her last breath. And in that very moment, his mom said to, to Jeremy, get down on your knees and thank God. And he resisted, but just for like a moment. She said, get on your knees. It wasn't mean. It was just like she knew if he didn't connect this moment to gratitude, then he would never be able to move forward in his relationship with Jesus. And that's sort of, I think, at the root of it. It's like, let's give somebody a really, 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 really hard problem that we can all relate to, or it might stop us in our path and go, wow, I hope that never happens to me. (laughs) And let's see how they get through it and how they can still find something beautiful, even in the midst. Mm, It's beautiful. Beauty from ashes. Yes, yes, nice. Okay, so our listeners love the story of how writers begin their careers. And I read that you were 26 years old and pregnant when, well, you just take it from there. Yeah, so I mean, I was always a writer. I wrote when I was five, I put my first pages together and made my first book, called it The Horse. I think every word was spelled wrong, but <laughs> my mom saved it. <laughs> <laughs> My mom saved it. She gave it to me for my college graduation, which was amazing. I didn't even know I'd written it. I had no memory of that. Um, Maybe a little bit because I was always just like coloring pages together, writing words, always wanting to write stories, short stories. And my dad would say when I was 12, 14, 16, he would read something and tears in his eyes. And he would say, Karen, big smile. One day everyone is going to know you're writing. And somebody has to be the next best-selling author. It might as well be you. Um, How sweet. So that's so sweet. So I grew up thinking that, like I didn't have any limits and um, got my degree in journalism. I worked for the newspaper, which probably has a lot to do with my outlining. And also the mm-hmm. speed that you write. Our friends, yeah. you know, Mary Kay is part of this Friends in Fiction and she was a journalist and she writes, and same with Christy, and they write so fast. Yeah. And I think it's that deadline, that journalistic, yeah. that outline, get moving. Yeah. I, I do think it has something to do with it. Yeah. I mean, you have 2,500, 3,000 words in a chapter, and it's like, okay, ready? Go. Let's get it. Get it done. 
and write that book in 10 days. And that should be a plenty of time if I have a clear calendar to get a 80,000 word, you know, book done. But when wait, I was, wait, 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 you're not kidding. You can write an 80,000 word book in 10 days. Yes. Karen, wow. Karen, <laughs> Karen, What's I, the secret? <laughs> it's been sitting your butt I, in the chair. I am coming to hang out with you. I just like <laughs> I just want one eighth of that speed. That is incredible. We I, I don't know if you know this, we shared an editor for just a, two minutes until Trish retired and uh, Trish Todd and yeah. um no wonder she wanted me to write faster. She works with you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Keep up well, with Karen, will you? I know. Well, you know, oh, I mean, goodness. people would like, I think, you know, people would look at my schedule. And I even had one person, a really crazy uh, reader, what wrote in once. And she said her subject line was Kingsbury fan no more. What? <gasps> you know, what? so I open it up and she's like. Now that you've become successful, now that you're writing two books a year, and I know you've abandoned your family, I am a Kingsbury fan no more. And it was like early morning. I happened upon it. I didn't have anyone really helping me with that stuff at the time. And I got I got choked up, and it was just very defeating to see that. And my daughter, Kelsey, came downstairs. She looked at it, what was going on, and she was like, let me respond to her. <laughs> she yes. was like, going to defend me. But it's it's like, I, and I look back and I look at the number of books I wrote during the years the kids were growing up. And a person might think I was like completely locked away in a room, never even like part of any of their lives. But it just wasn't true. In fact, even now is my fastest. I wrote in four days, you know, so I, it's, I don't get That's that. Incredible. I wish I could, I wish I could always do that. But if I set aside 10 days, Monday through Friday, two weeks, and don't put anything else on the calendar. In about six hours or so, I should be able to hit, you know, six, seven hours, 10,000 words. And I should be able to get it as it gets faster as I go. And 20,000, you know, 15,000 word days, and then even 20,000 word days are common in that process at that point. So um, it's it's one of the things that... (laughs) much to my editor's chagrin, will sometimes leave me waiting to the last minute to turn things in because I know that I, I can get it done. And then well, and you have comes the outline, up. right? You have, yes, I have the outline. Yeah, exactly. So I know, but it's better if I just do it all at once. It's not, it's not a good thing for me to think I could write one day a week or, you know, when, if, if I'm on deadline, like get it done. And here now I used to sometimes go places. We were talking about you know, the ways that you write and whatnot. But I used to sometimes take like two or three days and just get away and get a lot Mm -hmm. of it done. But now because of being a grandmother, I mean, I have, I'm a Grammy and I have four little grand boys that live nearby and they can stop by any old time. And I don't want to miss that. So we have a, we have a home theater downstairs and I'll go down, I'll dim the lights, put on a YouTube clip of like 10 hours in Fiji on the beach. (laughs) And I'll just, I'm in Fiji. Like I'm like, Give me my music. Like, I just need a little mist of salt air every now and then. And I am in, I mean, I'm in another place. And so that's become my trick lately is I can just go down there, get away and be in any, I can be in a coffee shop in Italy or on a beach in the Bahamas or a snowy mountaintop and I can get my work done. Oh, Karen, that's absolutely amazing. Endlessly fascinating. I know. I know. So it's often said that you write inspirational fiction. Why do you think readers are so drawn to inspirational fiction? What inspires you? What do you think of that term? Let's let's kind of dive into that. <laughs> well, it came life-changing fiction, which we coined eventually, but that came from the readers, you know, saying, mm. wow, you know, I read your book and 
it made me want to stay married or it made me want to call my sister and make things right. Like it was affecting their lives. It was a message that was coming in through the back door of their hearts. And I wasn't seeking to teach them something. I didn't have a message I really wanted to, to give them so much as I wanted to tell them a great story that they would love. And in the process, they would be changed. So, you know, wait, what um, C.S. Lewis calls that is sneaking past the watchful dragons. You called it coming in the back door of the heart, but I like sneaking. I like that too. Sneaking past the watchful dragons. I love that. That's exactly right. Because there's a part of us that though it might be good for us to read about forgiveness or to read about second chances or whatever. (laughs) No, exactly. (laughs) We we put up our walls and we're like, so I'm, that's for everyone else. But I, and we aren't even going to read that book. Like, I don't want, you're not going to read a how to book on forgiveness if you're dealing with some bitterness, you know? So it's not till you find yourself in a heap of pile of tears and tissues that you say, oh my goodness, that's the answer. I need to call my sister. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that moment. I think the difference is people who write, like especially like a mainstream novelist, for instance, let's say, a successful one even, can write about the physical, intellectual, and emotional aspects of a story, but they're not able to write about the spiritual. They're not comfortable Mm -hmm. with it. I'm very comfortable writing about the spiritual. So I can write about the physical and the intellectual and the emotional. It won't be gratuitous on the physical, but I can can get you to, you know what's going on. For sure. But then I can write about the spiritual too, where a person is running hard away from God. They're running toward God. They're um, trapped in a sense of hopelessness, whatever. I can get to that deeper place. And we literally all have that. Mm -hmm. Even if we're walking in a place of atheism, agnosticism, we're, we're still being pursued by God. So we still have this peace in us that is spiritual and that will resonate when they read a story that's that deep. Hmm. It hits that spot. Yeah. Sneaking that, past those Matt watchful drag. Yes. It's great. That's the connection between you and all of your millions of readers, I think, right there. Mm, thank you. So I, I recently read a quote that you said, my strength is my story. And that's so powerful. Can you talk about that? You know, to me, yeah, the story, whether it's my personal story, you know, that where I have this interesting story, I think that where until I was 25, like I was... I was writing and success came very easily for me and I wasn't a believer. So, you know, I didn't feel arrogant, but there was a definite sense of like, this is on me. You know, like I was a, I was writing for the Los Angeles times my senior year of college. And I was, you know, on staff writing a Sunday feature by the time I was in my mid twenties and all my peers were 15 years older than me. So I had a little sign on my desk even that said deadlines amuse me. Um, <laughs> Karen, <laughs> which to the, you know, again, like that's a I little hubris, like, right? A little hubris. Yes. 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 And I was like, I look back and I just shake my head at that girl who had no idea. And so again, becoming a believer in my mid twenties changed everything and showed me how it had nothing to do with me. And I couldn't will any of that. And it was a gift from God. So that, that is my part of the story. The strength that I have is my weakness that I understand Mm. my weakness now. I didn't understand it then. Um, So I can write from a place that I'm broken and so are my characters. And so that is going to give you a character that you can relate to because you're broken too. Wonderful. Love that. So 
But to round this out, I want to talk about the movie. Last year, you started your own production company, Karen Kingsbury Productions. I don't know where you got that fancy name, but (laughs) Karen Kingsbury Productions. And I've heard the adaptation of one of your novels is hitting the big screen about the same time this book comes out. Tell us everything about it. Yes, we want to know all. Yeah, so Someone Like You is a book that was released in 2020. And actually, we're now, it's releasing April um, 11th. So it's coming out in April, okay. which is good because that way, Someone Like You has its own window and just once has its own thing. And, you know, now in the theaters, I guess this fall, it's all Taylor Swift anyway. So <laughs> it's okay. just as well that yeah, we're going to be in the spring. But Someone Like You is a cinematic story, and I picked it, we picked it like kind of collectively as a family. And my, my husband was so amazing. You know, he kind of said, Karen, you know, if we have to sell everything, I believe we're supposed to do this. This, like, what do we want to do? You know, die going, we should have, we might have, we could have. Um, we just, we knew it was time. And it, I liken it to, you know, I was a sports writer for a short while back in the day for the LA Times. And there was a, there's this moment in professional baseball when the pitch at 97 miles an hour is coming fast over the middle of the plate. And you have 1.5 seconds or less as the batter to decide to swing and to take the swing and hit that ball, right, or not. We decided it was time to swing. And we swung for this ball. And now that we are in post-production and we are working hard on the finalization of the film, it is just a beautiful movie. Wow. Love story, cinematic about two uh, twin sisters separated at the Petri dish, uh, IVF. Oh, wow. One becomes London, and she lives with her parents. Mom can't have any more babies. They donate the embryo back when, you know, when London's one years old. They donate the embryo to a fertility specialist, and it gets moved to another state, to another doctor, to a husband-wife doctor team who couldn't have children. The baby, the little embryo was on ice for four years in cryopreservation. So now we have twin sisters, 28 and 24, who don't know each other exists and don't have any idea about each other. The 24-year-old, no idea that she's not biologically related to her parents, which is a problem. Uh, And then a tragedy happens, and London isn't with us anymore. And so now her best friend who's been in love with her for a decade, Dawson Gage, he's an architect, wants to do one last thing. He finds out about this other embryo and he wants to find that embryo and see if there's a brother or sister that could be London's sibling. And in the process, he finds um, Andy Allen working at the zoo and she has no idea she's not related to her family. And he engages her in a conversation that turns out to rock her world. Oh she my gosh, leaving. I have head to toe whoa, chills. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> oh my gosh, I have like, oh my goodness. Okay, I'm, I'll, I'll be there at the, maybe I could finagle a red carpet visit or something. I cannot wait to see this. And what oh. a pitch too. You just did tell us oh, that so you perfectly. Just, <laughs> you, just, you just set the hook and then started reeling us in. And same with Just Once. It is such a beautifully wrought love story and, and it, it just unfolds in a time period that is so different from what we're in today. And yet issues of the heart are always the same thing. Who do we love? How do we love? How do we make our choices? But Karen, thank you so much for joining us. We are so honored. But before we let you go, I want you to tell everyone where they can connect with you online and on social media. 
Well, thank you so much. And it has been such a pleasure to be with you today. We'll have to do this again because can we just talk like an hour? We can go hours. I agree. I'm there. It's so great. So yeah, KarenKingsbury.com is my website. And from there you can connect to me. Um, I'm just at Karen Kingsbury on all the different social medias, the, you know, even TikTok, I have that and, you know, Instagram, all the things, but someone like you.movie is where you can go to see the trailer for the movie and to get on the A-list and the A-list, we are going to send out a link to buy tickets two weeks early for the A-list. And so everyone else will be buying tickets on Valentine's Day. That's when they'll first go on sale for the April 11th release date. But my A-list gets them February 1st. So maybe if they have friends they want to sit with or they want the best seats, then they should sign up for the A-list. It's someone like you.movie. Oh, I'm signing up, baby. Okay, go ahead, Ron. (laughs) And a special shout out to you, our listeners, for joining us each week. Your comments and support mean everything. If you'd like to snag a copy of Just Once, and you know you do, please visit our Friends in Fiction bookshop.org page and help our independent bookstores. Thank you for listening, and remember to please tell a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here.